Welcome to Citizens Climate Radio. In this show, we highlight people's stories. We celebrate your successes, and together we share strategies for talking about climate change. I'm your host, Peter Toscano. Welcome to Episode 40 of Citizens Climate Radio, a project of Citizens Climate Education. This episode is airing on Saturday, September 28th, 2019. Later in the program, we hear answers to our puzzler question. Victor, a middle school student, is freaking out because of climate change and political inaction. At the recent student climate strike, I asked college students how they might answer Victor. In the art house, poet Catherine Pierce takes us into her poem, Anthropocene Pastoral. This moving poem is filled with so many layers. Catherine pulls back the curtain to reveal her process, then reads the poem. But first, we need a climate change fashion makeover. The world of fashion is a huge global business. Whenever there is big business, there is often a lot of pollution. Today, we jump into the world of fashion with the help of a journalist trying to get to the bottom of the story. Meet Tatiana Schlossberg. Tatiana reports on climate change and the environment. She's written for the science and climate sections of the New York Times, Her work has appeared in The Atlantic, Bloomberg View, and Yale Environment 360. She is also the author of a new book. Uh, My book is called Inconspicuous Consumption, The Environmental Impact You Don't Know You Have. You know, in my normal life, not as a reporter, I sort of assumed that I was somebody who cared about climate change and the environment and sort of, you know, knew enough about it to make the right decisions, at least when I was voting. Um, And that, you know, I voted for people who talked about renewable energy or climate change at all. But when I started reporting on it, I realized that there was so much about it that I didn't know and so much that was really difficult to find out. And a lot of that was kind of about how our individual lives connected to climate change and not just, you know, our behaviors like taking a flight or eating red meat, but kind of how all the stuff that we use has impacts that are related to pollution or climate change in in our country or, you know, all over the world. I felt like other people probably had those questions. You know, maybe writing a book about it would be appealing. Tatiana retains a friendly and even funny tone throughout the book. Still, when it comes to our amazing abilities to pollute, Tatiana doesn't hold back. I told her she can be downright devastating. (laughs) Devastating, yeah. I know I've just been rereading the book to get ready for my book tour, and I'm like, wow, I forgot (laughs) about all of these horrible things I discovered. Communicating that this stuff is really serious and really important, but that it is also interesting and there's lots of room for, you know, different kinds of solutions and engagement at all different levels. Tatiana highlights just how good we are at being bad. She pulls back the curtain to reveal the extreme chronic pollution in four major industries. So I wrote about internet and technology, food, fashion, and fuel. And I wrote about those areas because I thought, you know, some of them, like fashion and the internet, you know, are really counterintuitive. I think it's it's, people have seemed to be really surprised to learn that the internet has any sort of environmental impact at all. And similarly for fashion, or people don't sort of understand how big and wide ranging the impacts in the fashion world are. And then for food, I think that's something that people have maybe heard a lot about, you know, in terms of organic food or buying local. And I, you know, wanted to see if the conventional wisdom was really true. For our conversation today, I want to focus on fashion. This is an area that has often been overlooked in discussions about climate and pollution. 
a lot of the areas that I wrote about, there's a ton of you know research and journal articles and, and lots of experts. And for fashion, it's really not the same kind of thing. There's really not a ton of data. There hasn't been a lot of studies produced on the impact of different materials. Not a ton of experts to consult, which was really frustrating for me because I I had heard a few different things about the impacts of fashion, which are, you know, it's the second most polluting industry in the world and it's responsible for 10% of greenhouse gas emissions. But I actually couldn't find any supporting evidence for that data. I don't know why especially that is. My personal hypothesis is, you know, it's something that is not typically considered very serious and something that often, you know, women are interested in. And so it doesn't get the same kind of scientific assessment as other things that we study. In looking at the vast world of fashion, Tatiana focuses on specific sectors. First, she dives into the world of denim. I think the main thing about denim, which is, you know, is partially because denim is primarily made of cotton, is that it uses a really, really unbelievably huge amount of water. You know, growing about a kilogram of cotton, like two-ish pounds, on average uses around 2,000 gallons of water and about a little less than 20% of the world's pesticides are used to grow cotton. And then to make that cotton into a pair of jeans can use an additional 2,900 gallons of water. And that's to dye the jeans, you know, whatever color they are, and then do whatever washes you have, like acid wash, just making them look a little bit worn, things like that. So that to me was really amazing. I had, I had no idea. You know, we also don't even necessarily think of jeans as like a luxury item, especially like in the U.S. We wear them all the time and they're such a defining American symbol. But really, they, you know, they use a huge amount of resources to produce, takes the supply chain all around the world. The challenge is that once we move away from denim, the alternatives are also soaked in pollution. Surprise! Uh, Yeah, something that people ask me a lot is, okay, well, if cotton's so bad, what should I wear then? Or what's the best thing to wear? And all of these things have trade-offs. Producing synthetic fibers uses way less water. It's made of oil, and so it uses fossil fuels. And then to produce synthetic fibers also results in the emissions of 706 million metric tons of carbon dioxide, which is about 185 coal-fired power plants emitted in a year. So it, it has its own impact. But the thing that was really interesting for me to learn about was that, just to brighten up the picture a little bit here, uh, <laughs> was that when you um, wash your synthetic, fi- your synthetic clothes and even when you wear them, the pieces of the threads can break off you know, in the washing machine or in the air. And those small pieces, which are called microplastic fibers can escape through your washing machine into a wastewater treatment plant where they might kind of settle into the sludge of the wastewater treatment plant, which can sometimes be used for agricultural fertilizer. And then those tiny pieces of plastic can get into the food supply or, you know, washed off as agricultural runoff. Or if they escape from the wastewater treatment plant, they can end up in the ocean or other bodies of water. Some scientists think that this is the most abundant form of plastic pollution, and it's one that we don't hear about. You know, we hear about straws or plastic bags, but, you know, we don't, we don't hear about this kind of plastic pollution. Patagonia is a company which championed the use of alternatives to cotton. Now it understands the polluting risk we face from these synthetics. Patagonia, known for their sustainability values, now wants to address this problem head on. So they have sponsored a bunch of the studies that have looked at how the fibers are getting into the environment and what kinds of materials are worse than others. Turns out that fleeces, they shed a lot. 
which is, you know, ironic for Patagonia because they develop lease, you know, as a way to do something with plastic waste, like plastic bottles. And now it's, they've kind of created this this other problem. So they're they're working on some other solutions. You know, they have like a bag or a ball that something that you can put in your washing machine that will collect the fibers. You know, while they work on sort of developing better materials. Tatiana also writes about the rapidly growing business of fast fashion. Just like fast food is junk for our bodies, fast fashion is producing a lot of trash on the planet. We've all gotten used to not valuing our our stuff, especially our clothes, because it is so cheap. You know, it's cheap because nobody is really paying for the cost, and there are a lot of costs associated with fast fashion, whether it's sort of the production of synthetics like we've been talking about, or water use, other material use, things like that. But also, you know, if you buy clothes that aren't made of good quality and then you throw them away, you know, they end up going to a landfill or burned. That has significant consequences and also makes all that consumption seem irrelevant. And nobody is paying for those costs to our kind of water supply or, you know, our emissions or when things get into a landfill and they leach chemicals or they result in the emissions of methane. So it's cheap for a reason. (laughs) And the reason is that it's made in a really unsustainable way. Tatiana's book does an excellent job at pointing out the many ways we are fabulously skilled at creating pollution. She readily admits she doesn't provide a lot of solutions. She understands we need to move beyond simple individual behavior changes. System changes are essential. The solutions that we've been given in terms of what we can do in our daily lives are really not big enough. You know, this is really not about you're bringing a reusable tote bag to the grocery store or not using a plastic bottle, which is not to say that those things aren't important, but that the impacts of this issue of, of consumption and climate and how all of these things are connected is so much bigger than me turning off a light bulb in my house. And so we have to understand these issues in their context and at scale in order to make a, a big enough difference for it to matter. And so that's why in my book, I say, you know, the most powerful thing you can do is to vote. You know, another really important thing to do is to talk about this issue, because I'm sure your listeners talk about this all the time, but it's only about a third of Americans who say they talk about climate change at all. Less than a quarter say they hear about it in the media. But once people do learn about it from the media or talk about it with their family and friends, they're much more likely to understand the risks and to support policy solutions. You know, those are kind of the really big collective actions that we can take as individuals that are so much that are more powerful and might happen on the on the scale that we need to really address the problem. Tatiana firmly believes that politicians can and must be part of the solution. Hear her read from the book and highlight the successes that motivate her and keep her hopeful. It may sound cheesy, but as I went through the five stages of environmental grief, denial, anger, trying to use less plastic, depression, determination, while writing this book, I came to realize in a new and powerful way that in the end, we're not powerless. In this country, we can vote, and that can work. In 1969, pollution in the Cuyahoga River near Cleveland, Ohio, caught fire for the 13th time because of the oil and industrial waste that were being dumped into the river. And there was also a massive oil spill in Santa Barbara, California. The next year, activists and politicians organized the first Earth Day, which brought 20 million Americans to the metaphorical and physical streets. One of their goals was to get people to base their vote on one issue, the environment. In the 1970 election, some of those same activists, part of environmental action, targeted 12 members of Congress with the worst environmental voting records, 
nicknaming them the Dirty Dozen. When seven of the 12 lost, the impact went way beyond those seven elections. It sent a message to all the other lawmakers and led directly to the passage of the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts, two of the most consequential and effective pieces of environmental legislation in history. And it is starting to happen again. As of this writing, after the 2018 midterm election, several newly elected members of the House of Representatives, many of them young women of color, along with some senators, made the passage of a Green New Deal, an actual set of policies to combat climate change, among their first priorities. No matter what happens, we are going to have to continue to fight to make a difference. The changes we need are big and complicated, and a lot of special interests are aligned against progress. So these new elected officials might not be able to make them happen right away. We might not change the entire electrical grid in one session of Congress. But that's no reason not to start. The book is Inconspicuous Consumption by Tatiana Slushberg. It's available wherever you get books. Now it is time for the art house. Joining us is poet Catherine Pierce. She co-directs the writing program at Mississippi State University. I invited Catherine to reveal to us the often secret world of poetry. I like poetry a lot, but I admit sometimes much of it goes over my head. Catherine will tell us about the creation of the poem and the many choices and changes she made in creating it. Then she will read her poem. It's an incredibly moving artistic meditation on climate change. First, Catherine talks about the inspiration for the poem. I started writing the poem during the superbloom, the California superbloom of 2017, when the California deserts were just covered in all these gorgeous wildflowers. People were traveling out there to see them, and all these articles were being written about them, and all these photographs were being published, and it was gorgeous. I was thinking, wow, this is amazing, and it's so beautiful, and also, wow, maybe this is problematic. Maybe this is not actually as as wonderful as it seems on the surface. It's so confusing because the word bloom is such a beautiful word and it speaks to so much lushness. And then you think about, right, the algae blooms. It's, it's so unsettling, I think, to hear that phrase. And I've written about that too, actually, about algae blooms too, for, for that reason, that it's, it sounds so beautiful. And of course it's not. And so that's kind of where the poem came from. I started thinking about the ways that so many small things in our lives or seemingly small things in our lives are impacted by climate change and specifically by weather extremes. So that super bloom was caused, as so many things are, by weather extremes. The region's worst dry spell in history was followed by twice the normal wintertime precipitation. And it caused this really gorgeous super bloom explosion. It didn't just come out of sort of perfectly innocuous circumstances. It came out of extreme weather. I was thinking about how often we all experience extreme weather these days, just very wet days, very dry days, you know, warmer seasons, much colder than usual, and how the effects of these things aren't always obviously alarming. It's easy to be lulled by these changes. It's that lulling that sense of false comfort that also allows us to pretend that maybe things aren't dire and that we don't need to take action. And so that's that's where this poem came from, was out of thinking about that. The title was originally Super Bloom. That was what I had called it, which was not that interesting. <laughs> and it was, it was factual, or at least it was where the poem had originally started. But 
the more I read it, and I showed it to some people who didn't quite hook into what was happening, and so I made some revisions based on that. But the title was one of the big revisions that I made. I liked the idea of playing with the, the pastoral tradition in poetry. You know, these poems that kind of meditate on on nature and the, the peacefulness of, of the earth and the surroundings. And I wanted to sort of play with the irony of having a poem that would that would be a pastoral poem, but that would be about something being destroyed, even through its beauty. Once inspired, she then began to craft the lines. It started with that first line, which is, in the beginning, the ending was beautiful. That was a line that had just been kind of rattling around in my head for a few days as I'd been reading about the super bloom, thinking about how, how beautiful it was, how amazing it was, and how there are often things like that. Like the, the dogwood tree blooms really early and we think, oh, wow, look at that. That's so nice. But it's actually, you know, a harbinger of something much more frightening. And I was thinking about that. And so I had that line. And then I just wanted to write a poem that was kind of a, a sensory overload poem in the way that the, the super bloom would be for someone experiencing that. I wanted a lot of color in the poem. I wanted animals in the poem. I wanted it to feel very alive so that that contrast between, you know, the beauty being depicted and what it might signify could appear sort of in, in sharp relief, I guess. A poet needs to consider who is speaking in the poem and to whom. When are they speaking? Another choice that I made when I was writing the poem was that it was really important to me to have it be a plural first-person speaker. So not just a, a single first-person speaker saying, I did this, I experienced this, but I really wanted that we voice, that sort of communal voice in the poem for a couple of reasons. One was that I wanted to speak to the largeness of this, you know, how universal this is and how, how this is happening to everyone. It was important to me in this poem not to place blame exactly. I mean, the poem does place blame. It places blame on all of us. But at the same time, I wanted to make even that feel generous, if possible. Everyone kind of experiencing this together. Everyone kind of convincing themselves that maybe it's all right and knowing that really it's not, but still kind of trying to justify things, trying to make things feel okay. Going through this together as a, as a community of people on the earth kind of experiencing these changes and it, this progression toward what will be the end of things if, if things don't turn around pretty quickly. So that floral first person voice was really important to me to get in the, in the poem. And I was thinking too about the tense of the poem. It was originally written in present tense. It was about how it's, the ending is happening now, and it is beautiful, and this is what it does look like right now. And then as I was revising it, I thought, I think this needs to be in past tense so that it has sort of like a, a fable-esque feel to it. I thought it felt a little more haunting that way, like a story that someone is telling after the fact, after this thing has already happened. The poet has many language tools at her disposal. Catherine goes even beyond the traditional use of words to use them in new ways. One thing that I like to do in poems is I like to to verb nouns or to verb words that aren't usually verbs, right? So I think that just makes for sort of an interesting contrast and bit of visual effect sometimes in a poem. So this poem has the line, near the end, we were eyeletted, we were cottoned, we were sundressed and barefoot. And I was thinking of the ways that we, you know, we dress ourselves when it's when it's warm weather, all that sort of very lightweight fabric and how pleasant that can feel to go outside and just have, you know, these very lightweight things on. And so I wanted to use those as as verbs to kind of 
show how actively the people in the poem are, are engaging with this this process of dressing themselves in these these light fabrics during this time of the, the world ending, basically. Catherine packs her poem with distinctive images. Well, one thing that made this poem really fun to write, even though its subject matter is pretty bleak, was the fact that I could use so many specific words. Words of different kinds of flowers or different kinds of animals. Verbena and wisteria and onion grass, which is always my favorite springtime smell. And there's bobcats and robins and coyotes and dogwoods. And I just wanted all of these really specific things, these specific names in the poem, because these are the things that we're engaging with every day and that we're seeing, but we take them for granted. It's so easy to take them for granted. These these trees that we see or these flowers, these animals that might live in our area. I wanted to sort of single them out and have them in the poem so that we could consider them even just for a second as the poem goes on, because these are the things that are going to be disappearing. And also it's more fun when you're writing a poem to use concrete language, specific language, to use these details that can make something come alive in a way that a more abstract word wouldn't be able to do. Once a poem is complete, the poet then sends it out into the world, hoping it finds its place. So I sent this poem out, as I do with most poems that I write, to a handful of magazines This one I sent to one of my favorite magazines, the American Poetry Review, and they took it, which thrilled me because it was my first time getting something taken by them. So I was really excited. Every issue, they put one poem on the back cover. So it's sort of almost like a broadside. It's a a big magazine. It's like a newsprint kind of magazine. And so they have one poem that appears on the back cover. It's really visible that way. And so this was where that poem appeared which was really nice because it meant that a lot of people did get to see it and it did kind of get out into the world. And now, Catherine Pierce reads for us her poem. Anthropocene Pastoral In the beginning, the ending was beautiful. Early spring everywhere, the trees furred pink and white, lawns the sharp green that meant new. The sky so blue it looked manufactured, Robins. We'd heard the cherry blossoms wouldn't blossom this year, but what was one epic blooming when even the desert was an explosion of verbena? When bobcats slinked through primroses, when coyotes slept deep in orange poppies. One New Year's Day we woke to daffodils, wisteria, onion grass wafting through the open windows. Near the end we were eyeleted, we were cottoned, We were sundressed and barefoot. At least it's starting gentle, we said. An absurd comfort, we knew, a placebo. But we were built like that. Built to say, at least. Built to reach for the heat of skin on skin, even when we were already hot. Built to love the purpling desert in the twilight. Built to marvel over the pink bursting dogwoods, to hold tight to every pleasure even as we rocked together toward the graying, even as we held each other, warmth to warmth, and said, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, while petals sifted softly to the ground all around us.
encourage you to follow Catherine and learn more about her work. She explains how. I'm on Twitter. It's Katie with a K, P Pierce, because I spell Katie with a K, even though I spell Catherine with a C, which is totally confusing, but it's just how it is. And then I'm on Facebook, Catherine Pierce, and then my website is just CatherinePierce.net because CatherinePierce.com was already taken by somebody. So. <laughs> In the show notes, I have links to some of her other climate-themed poems that are available for you to read online. Catherine's poem, The Mother Warns the Tornado, is beautifully presented in a short film. I'll have a link for that, too. Find links and more over at our show notes. Visit citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog. citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog. Special thanks to Glenn Retiff from Susquehanna University for his suggestion to interview Catherine. If you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me. Radio at citizensclimate.org. Before we end our show, we have our monthly puzzler question. Last month, I told you about Victor. He's a middle school student who just heard you speak about climate change. He came up to you and said, I'm freaking out because of all the bad stuff I'm seeing, and it seems like it's just getting worse and worse. I I really don't see the point of even trying anymore. I think we're too far gone. What difference does it make? Two students from Susquehanna University who attended the climate strikes have answers for Victor. My full name is Alexander William Morgan. I prefer Alex, class of 2021, and um, I study creative writing. I think I'd tell him to definitely, like, not pacify or calm down because definitely he needs to, like, get his, like, views out there and make sure that he's heard. Um, I'd say that he should, like, get involved with, like, things like this. Like, he should, like, find different, like, protest movements and connect himself to, like, different groups that definitely, like, care about, you know, the environment, care about helping all others. We don't have a whole lot of time, but with what little time we have, we might as well use that time to improve and, like, better others. Supporting bills, uh, you know, legislation like the new Green Deal that will help better things support uh, politicians within that sort of mindset. Cheyenne Naus, I'm a senior. I would tell Victor that anything that he does is something and something is better than nothing. And if he teams up with like-minded people, then he can make a bigger impact. At the student climate strike held in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, I got to hear students from River Valley Nature School give a short presentation. Hearing these elementary students speak, I thought what they have to say might also be a real encouragement to Victor. What do you get when you cross the globe with a microwave? I know, global warming. (laughs) That was supposed to be a joke, but global warming is not funny. Creatures on our planet are losing their homes like polar bears and snow tigers who cannot find ice. All animals could be extinct. It might lead to war. Too much carbon dioxide is causing the problem. We need to stop cutting down trees. We need to use different kinds of transportation like electric trains and bikes. cars and adults need to make good choices. Yeah. Our future is in your hands. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, Alex, Cheyenne, River Valley Nature School, and everyone who answered the puzzler. So, are you ready for the next puzzler question? 
Here goes. After attending the recent climate strikes, you ran into your cousin, Kristen. She saw news reports about the events around the world. She said to you, I love that sign, system change, not climate change. But it's a total fantasy, right? I mean, what do they expect, everyone to go vegan or something? What systems can we possibly change that will make any difference with climate change? Kristen needs some help envisioning the kind of change you're pursuing. How would you answer, Kristen? Send me your answers. Leave your name, contact info, and where you're from. Get back to me by October 15th, 2019. You can email your answers to radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Or leave a voicemail of three minutes or less at the following number, 518-595-9414. Plus one, if calling from outside the USA. That number again is 518-595-9414. We've come to the end of episode 40 of Citizens Climate Radio. Thank you for joining me. The show is written and produced by me, Peterson Toscano. Other technical support from Ricky Bradley and Brett Cease. Social media assistance from Ashley Hunt Montorano, Flannery Winchester, and Steve Volk. Moral support from Madeline Para. Please be sure to share Citizens Climate Radio with your friends. Share links to our show on Facebook, Twitter, and through email. Many thanks to Brian Etling for his Twitter and Facebook posts he creates each month for each episode. Thank you, Brian. Join the discussion at our Facebook group page, facebook.com slash groups slash Citizens Climate Radio. You can also follow us on Twitter at Citizens C Radio. That's Citizens, the letter C, Radio, at Citizens C Radio. And feel free to tweet at me directly, at P2Sun, the letter P, the number 2, S-O-N. Visit citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog to see info about our puzzler and find links to our guests. Citizens Climate Radio is a project of Citizens Climate Education. 